Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to Newsweek's Foreign Service. I'm Mirren Gidda. And I'm Josh Lowe. And each week we take a look at the big stories in the US and what they mean for the rest of the world. Now, this week, we're looking at a term that has a bit more meaning and significance nowadays in Britain than in America, but is nonetheless important to both countries' foreign policy. It's called the special relationship, and it's a term first coined by Winston Churchill when he was the ex-British prime minister in 1946, touring around America to describe the nature of the particularly close alliance between these two countries. And, And in Churchill's mind, the special relationship was a kind of cornerstone of the building of an international order after the Second World War. World War that would ensure peace and security around the world. Fast forward a few decades and the special relationship was at its most special perhaps between Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, you know, two leaders who seemed to have a relationship where they treated each other as equals, there was that mutual respect, and they were engaged as sort of a Western front against the evils of communism. And even now we see Republicans adore Thatcher, some Conservatives also adore Reagan, that respect still continues. Then things maybe took a little bit more of a sour turn a few decades later when you have Tony Blair and George W. Bush. Now, Blair obviously came into office when Bill Clinton was in power. They were two uh, politicians who were a bit more ideologically close. So when uh, Bush took over, um, Blair thought it was very important to show his faithfulness to the president, despite the fact the two didn't uh, necessarily share an ideology at home. And what that led to, long story short, was Britain's total cooperation um, in the Iraq war. The idea that, as Blair put it to Bush in a secret memo, which has since been released, I'll be with you, whatever. Um, and that slightly soured the special relationship for many people in the public. Um, he, Bush, uh, Blair was known as Bush's poodle. Um, and there was a sense that Britain became sort of subordinate to the US and yoked to this much larger partner, uh, doomed to do with it whatever it wanted. So that brings us to now. We've got our Prime Minister, Theresa May, desperately trying to curry favour with the US's President Donald Trump. And it's interesting because May has said she doesn't agree with many of Trump's more controversial policies. But the problem is we're careering out of the EU. May doesn't really have many friends left and she's trying to strike trade deals. The US is obviously a significant trading partner. So she's gone cap in hand to meet with Trump. And when they met, you know, there there was much talk about the special relationship. But the real question is, is it special or is May just a little bit desperate? So I think that's uh, about enough from us. Um, We've got a couple of great guests in here to talk about this with us, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves. This is Jacob Perakilos. I'm the assistant head of the US and the Americas program at Chatham House. This is Abby Wilkinson. I'm a freelance journalist. So uh, in the UK, um, it's been painted as something of a coup uh, for Theresa May, this, this, uh, the fact that she's got in a visit so early with Donald Trump. Um, and in fact, she uh, actually said as much uh, to Parliament the other day. I'm pleased that I am able to meet President Trump so early in his administration. That is a sign of the strength of the special relationship between the United Kingdom and the United States of America. Is it... 
a coup? Is this something Britain should be proud about? Is this something everyone should be shouting about? Or should we uh, feel very differently about it? I think it's not such a coup. I think it's normally traditional that um, the Canadian prime minister meets the new American president. And as far as I can tell, the only reason that didn't happen is because he didn't want to. I think May looks desperate. I think Theresa May doesn't have a lot of choice in terms of how she plays this. Um, I don't think necessarily that means that she's played this to her advantage. But I think given where the UK is, given what's going on with uh, the British relationship with the EU, with Brexit, I think it's very important for you know, any British prime minister would have to try to lean heavily on their relationship with the American president. Uh, but whether that's going to be sustainable in the long term, whether that's going to be tenable in terms of managing Britain's sort of intermediary relationship between the US and the EU, I'm not confident. And I think Abby raises a good point, which is that many of, uh, well, not many, but some of the world's leaders made it quite clear that they weren't in a big hurry to go and meet with Donald Trump. Can we still say it's a coup then? Can we still say, well, at least he picked her out of the leaders who, who you know, did want to meet with him? Oh, I mean, she wasn't even the first British politician to meet with him, was she? I think she was third. I, I, I really... Um... Well, I think, I think the distinction is, I mean, you're right, it was just she was the first... British politician to meet with him since he became president. Okay. But obviously Nigel Farage got in there when he was president-elect. So it's kind of semantics. Yeah. I think I kind of understand the argument that we might need to rely more heavily on our relationship with the US, um, considering what's going on with the EU, what's going on with Brexit. But it's also, regardless of any kind of like moral or other issues, the idea that a relationship with Donald Trump is reliable seems to go against kind of the evidence. Well, if there's anything we learned about Trump during the campaign, it's that he has an exceptional talent for sniffing out weakness and seeing where he can see, where he can seize opportunities to be the stronger partner. Uh, and, you know, as we know, the special relationship is not a symmetrical relationship to begin with. The U.S. is always the the more powerful partner. And that, that has sort of made things difficult for British prime ministers of both parties going back to the Second World War. Um, and I think Theresa May is no different, but she comes at this at a, at a point where she's dealing with an American president who is perhaps uniquely unwilling to engage in um, non-zero-sum thinking. And she comes at it at a position where the UK is weaker vis-a-vis -vis the US than at any point since World War II. Uh, so, I mean, she, she was dealt a very poor hand, but I'm not convinced yet that she's playing it particularly well. Yeah, you say that the UK's uh, always been something of an unequal partner. I mean, what, what what do you mean by that? What is the kind of the balance traditionally in the special relationship? How's how's it played out before? I mean, the obvious correlate here is pre-Iraq war. The idea being that Blair would go along with Bush and that he would sort of steer Bush away from some of the more um, extreme elements of this neoconservative foreign policy. But as we saw from the Chilcot inquiry, what came out from that was that Blair had basically given away Britain's negotiating position from the beginning. You know, I'm with you, whatever. So he didn't actually succeed in sort of steering Bush away from anything. Um, so the idea that May is going to somehow exhibit more control over the direction of American foreign policy than Blair did over Bush is, I, I think, a little bit of optimistic thinking. I mean, even the body language felt like a power play. There's the kind of infamous hand-holding photo, isn't there? Um, and just in announcing the um, travel ban after she'd left. The whole, the whole thing, um, it feels like he's happy to make her look like a fool and happy to kind of assert his dominance and... Um, 
it, it's hard it's hard to see how it's this kind of the way she's playing is going to be beneficial in the long term and also I mean what did we make of the visit I mean was anything important achieved in terms of sort of first meetings historic first meetings how significant was it I mean what did she really succeed in getting not a whole lot, as far as I can tell. I mean, she got she got very positive headlines from the British press for about 18 hours. And then the band came out. And it was very, very difficult for the sort of positivity to be maintained. It was, you know, the, the, the I, I was looking at newspapers the following Monday, and some of the more uh, right-wing papers did manage to sort of find a silver lining that, you know, the foreign minister had managed to get a an exception for British dual nationals. But that seems to be more about the haste with which the ban was put together and the fact that it was not cleared through the State Department or the Office of Legal Counsel or the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, than about any particular sort of diplomatic negotiation on Britain's part. So, I mean, to the extent that she got a a publicity boost, it was very short-lived. And um, before Donald Trump was elected, if we can all imagine at that time, but before he before he was president, um, you know, the US made it very clear under President Obama that if the UK left the EU, we would be at the back of the queue, so to speak. And, you know, when Donald Trump met with Theresa May, he had some very fine words to say about the UK. The special relationship between our two countries has been one of the great forces in history for justice and for peace. And by the way, my mother was born in Scotland, Stornoway, which is serious Scotland. We can't ignore the reality, which is we are leaving the EU. And, you know, how will Trump view us then? Because will we really be that important? You know, we're, we're not exactly a significant trading partner, and he's not even someone who's particularly fond of trade. He'll be very happy to sign a bilateral trade agreement with the UK because there's no narrative in the US about British workers coming to America and stealing American manufacturing jobs. It's just the, the kind of trade agreement that he'd sign isn't something that would threaten his populist and I, I say that sort of in air quotes, message. It's not something that would appeal, it, it would undercut his appeal. And in fact, it might bolster his reputation a little bit as a deal maker. That said, I think the terms of the deal would be pretty favorable to the US and pretty unfavorable to the UK because the UK will need this deal much more than the US does. So he will be able to dictate whatever kind of deal that his commerce department and his labor department, which are going to be headed by people who are very, who come directly out of industry and are very friendly to those concerns that they negotiate. And the UK, you know, in, in need of a trade agreement, will be under enormous pressure to sign it. It, it seems obvious that we're, you know, we're not in a strong negotiating position. Um, I know a lot of people in the UK are very worried about the possibility that um, NHS contracts might be included in any deal. And there's also this sense that Trump, I mean, supposedly Trump gets a lot of his information about Brexit and the EU and Europe and the UK from Nigel Farage, who, as we've already mentioned, is kind of his best mate. Um, and No, no, that's Piers Morgan. Though. Piers Morgan, yeah. I mean, so he's got his two British friends. But, I mean, if you're going to get an intelligence dossier on the UK, I don't know if I'd advise you go to Nigel Farage and Piers Morgan no. for, your, for, your, for your guidance. But that seems to be where his information is coming from. And there is this sense in terms of how he views the UK that he might be rewarding uh, us in this country because he likes the fact that we left the EU and his his um, his team are somehow ideologically opposed to the EU. I mean, firstly, do we think there's anything in that? And secondly, if there is something in it, uh, is it something that's in any way good for the world? 
I think it's pretty clear at this point. The comments that he made to, I think it was in his interview with uh, Spiegel that came out right before his inauguration, that he is at best ambivalent towards the EU and at worst views it as a hostile economic rival. Um, I mean, he hasn't named an ambassador to the EU yet, so it remains to be seen what his approach will be on that. But certainly, I think uh, Bannon, who has been his his uh, sort of chief advisor on a lot of foreign policy matters, despite not having conventional foreign policy experience, uh, sees the EU as kind of a, a a weak liberal project rather than something that strengthens the you know ethnic nationalist unity of the West. And you know, he may not be hostile to the idea of a European Union, but he's hostile to the way the European Union is currently constructed. So unless the EU is remade as a sort of ethno-nationalist project, I think that the U.S. will be, <laughs> which Lord. is unlikely. Um, I think I yeah. think his his position towards the EU will be will be sort of um, more ambivalent than than anything else, and you know, and won't support greater European integration. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Like you said earlier, there's no reason to believe um, Trump approaches any kind of like diplomatic relationship as anything other than the competition. When you talk about him rewarding us, he might pat us on the heads, but I, I don't think he's going to do anything other than use his kind of power in the negotiating um, situation to get everything he can at our expense. He's also put uh, the bust of Winston Churchill back in his office, though. Well. Which, uh, we're all... <laughs> and his mother famously is Scottish. But it's interesting, the, the point that you mentioned about how he views diplomacy, because I've personally, I'm fascinated by Trump's psychology. And I wonder, in because he's now got to sort of meet with world leaders and talk about how he's going to, to deal with them. Is his position going to be, perhaps with the exception of Putin, to view them all as subordinates, that he wants a relationship where he is, you know, the boss and they are his his underlings? And perhaps, you know, that that's how he's going to see the UK. You know, we're weaker, we've left the EU and he can sort of dominate us. I don't think necessarily he'll see EU leaders as subordinates exactly. I mean, this is somebody who views the world through a sort of zero-sum deal-making prism. So... You're not his subordinate unless you actually work for him, but you're a, a hostile negotiating partner, even if you have 70-some years of historic political, social, economic alliance in your past with the US. Um, so I think he will he will approach the, the European Union and individual European countries very much from that. Uh, that said, I mean, his individual relationships with leaders are hard to predict because you saw, you know, his, his first meeting with a world leader was with Peña Nieto in Mexico City. And he was all sort of conciliatory and very, you know, talked about hemispheric 
priorities and the things that would benefit Mexico and countries in Central America and South America. And then four hours later, he's back on the ground in Arizona talking about how the Mexicans don't know it yet, but they're going to pay for the wall and sort of, you know, right back into that red meat to the base mode. So I, you can imagine a situation where he has a surprisingly conciliatory conversation with Angela Merkel and, you know, talks about the ways in which the U.S. and the EU can and should continue to work together uh, and then goes home and, you know, resumes this conversation about the EU stealing a, what, a business that should be America's and leading to the loss of American jobs. And, and you know, it's also worth remembering that there are other people in the U.S. government and, you know, Congress and the State Department and the Defense Department while support when uh, inter- the State Department of the Defense Department's case, subordinate to the president in Congress's case, definitely not, at least not officially, they will they will have something to say about this as well. I think he tries to do the kind of slick businessman thing of sort of to some extent saying what people want to hear when he's in the room with them. But I think his Twitter account and, and what he what he says back in the US is a better insight into what's actually going on in his head. I think he um, he gave a speech to the CIA and was quite positive, um, which, you know, is conflicted with everything he's said otherwise. I, I think it's insincere and I don't think... I think it's going to make negotiating with him an interesting experience. And there's a sense that some people in some of the leaders in Western Europe kind of agree with you there in the sense that they are being much more cautious. They're not actually, no one's really been hostile uh, other than people we might expect to be hostile. But in Western Europe, you have had, you mentioned Merkel earlier, Abby. Um, there's been this, uh, and the EU as well, have named him as a kind of potential sort of challenge to the union in future. So there's this sense of kind of caution. Um how do we think they're going to play that out? I mean, are people going to have to gradually sort of fall before the altar of Trump or are they going to keep playing at this arm's length distance? It's, it's so difficult to know what sort of challenge he's going to present. When you've got Bannon talking about war with China and you've got Trump talking about cancelling trade deals with a month's notice, if I was um, Merkel or May or anyone, I'd be trying to come up with a whole range of contingency plans um, for all kinds of possibilities. Well, and there's been a lot of reporting that that's exactly what the German government is doing, yeah. is that they're planning for the absolute worst case scenario, yeah. which is a, you know, a full political break with the US and they're trying to sort of preserve a European order, even if they can't, that can't be a sort of rules-based international order. They're, they're trying to preserve sort of first the political stability of Germany and then if they can, the political stability of Europe. And I think that goes to the, the, the heart of the question, which is, you know, there isn't, Aside from China, there isn't a single country on earth which can sort of stand up to the U.S. by itself without allies. But you can imagine networks or groups or associations of countries that would be willing. So the problem from the perspective of, you know, if you imagine the U.S. flipping from sort of in favor of the liberal order to sort of opposed to it – the liberal order is what the U.S. created and it's at the heart of the largest network of alliances the world has ever seen. So it's going to take a significant push, which may or may not actually happen, for countries that have been sort of invested in this order to try to remake it and try to try to move to a different kind of balancing arrangement. But could we maybe see the EU as a bloc standing up to Trump? I don't know if they can be powerful enough to sort of square off against the US, but we saw when Trump was um, musing about who to possibly appoint as ambassador to the EU, and the guy he um, might choose, whose name totally escapes me, is anti, you know, the EU. He's talked about wanting to, to break it up, basically, in the way that the Soviet Union was broken up. And I think that caused a panic among 
the members of the EU, they sort of had meetings and they were trying to plan for the worst, Abby, as you kind of mentioned. So what about that? What if Europe faces off against the US? Ted Malik is the guy's name. And Ted Malik is engaging in a pretty open campaign to be named ambassador to the EU. He may or may not actually get that. I mean, one, one, one would imagine that Rex Tillerson, now that he's actually in the office of Secretary of State, is getting some input onto who uh, who gets to be ambassadors. And it's, I mean, ultimately, the choice is Trump's, but you know, you don't start a good relationship by overruling your subordinates. And Tillerson, for all the consternation that came out when it was you know, announced that the CEO of ExxonMobil was going to be the nominee for Secretary of State. Tillerson is fairly invested in the, uh, the the existing order, and he has what I understand are relatively conventional foreign policy views on most issues. So I suspect he's probably pushing for an EU ambassador who is not aggressively hostile to the EU, and it could be that you know internal conversations will convince Trump that the EU is more useful as a foil against China than it is as a sort of sparring partner. Um, so, you know, certainly if I was in Tillerson's shoes, that's the, the tack I would be pushing for is, you know, yes, I know that, that the EU is a sort of trading rival, but we actually get enormous benefits out of the relationship with them. So let's see if we can use them as sort of a bulwark against China, again, you know, in terms of shoring up our more aggressive posturing towards China, they're more useful than, than they are as, a, as an opponent. I mean, we've seen what happens when European leaders uh, annoy Donald Trump. Um, in fact, we've got a clip here of Donald Trump giving his unvarnished view of the German Chancellor Angela Merkel. What's happening in Germany, I always thought Merkel was like this great leader. What she's done in Germany is insane. It's insane. They're having all sorts of attacks. They're having you mean all letting sorts of, in the Letting the in that many people. This is someone who is quite scary and unpredictable to deal with. Um, can European countries then in the long term afford to kind of keep him at arm's length? How can they go about creating different strategies? And can the UK ever change the tack it's now put itself on in terms of, you know, just clasping him close and holding on for dear life? <laughs> That's a big question. It was three questions, actually. <laughs> um, Which one do you want to ask? I, I agree he's um, unpredictable. I, I think it's been kind of funny um, watching people develop these kind of complex theories about how this is kind of 12-dimensional chess and the reason mm. he's tweeting in caps at 6.30 in the morning is because he's trying to do this and trying to do that, not because he just watched something on Fox News and it made him angry. I mean, like you said, the, um, the executive's not just one man. There might be moderating forces in there. I think the fact that he doesn't operate like a normal politician in the sense that he seems very impulsive, he doesn't necessarily seem to think through his public state statement certainly makes it very hard for um, other leaders to sort of try and plan for what Yeah, what I know what you happen. mean. All of those medium posts like flying around about Trump's, you know, Trump's big plan for staging a US coup. <laughs> and it's just like people are reading stuff that isn't there. I mean, what, what do you think, Jacob? Can people afford to keep him at arm's length or they're going to have to really just deal decisively with him? I, I mean, you, you you have to deal with the US. There was a strain of thought during the campaign that maybe if we all ignore Trump, he'll, he'll go away. And regardless of the fact that we turned out not to be able to ignore Trump, uh, you know, he's now, he's the president of the United States. And, and maybe there are a couple of countries in the world that can afford the United States out of geographical positioning and size. Uh, 
but there are very few countries in the US, particularly not in strategically important regions of which Europe is certainly one, that can afford to ignore the president of the United States. So I mean, again, I think a lot of countries will probably be putting a lot of effort into their their relationships with uh, key members of Congress. I think John McCain will probably be getting a lot of calls, Lindsey Graham, Chuck Schumer. Um, you know, those guys will all be getting a lot of outreach from concerned Europeans, as will Secretary Mattis and Secretary Tillerson. Um, I think the the relationship between the Secretaries of State and Defense is going to be really important because if those two departments, which have historically clashed over pretty much everything, um, can actually get along in sort of in defense of the broad bipartisan currents of American foreign policy, then that's going to be an institutional obstacle which Trump will find it very difficult no matter what he says or does to overcome. Not impossible, but difficult to overcome. I was, was going to say, I, um, I read something quite funny um, the other day that said that um, Trump's media habits are so predictable that advertisers are, um, and lobbyists are buying adverts on, say, The Morning Joe. In, in these shows they know he watches. Um, and at least one company had bought an advert um, where they wanted to try and annoy him because they wanted him to treat negatively or make a negative public statement about it because um, they thought that would help them sell products. Um, maybe the EU could um, take <laughs> out some TV ads at opportune times. <laughs> it's funny because the, I, so I used to live in Pentagon City, which true to its name is right next to the Pentagon. So I would commute through the Pentagon Metro when I was on my way to work. And there were ads, big sort of, you know, like five foot wide ads in the Pentagon Metro for, you know, the Boeing's HH-47's combat search and rescue helicopter. You know, most of the, the vast majority of the thousands of people going through pe Pentagon Metro a day don't have the authority to buy a combat search and rescue helicopter, but the five or six people who do go through that metro station. Yeah. So there's a sort of, you know, uh, call, call it a very, very specific type of micro-targeting yeah. involved there. Okay, well, on that note, um, I think we're going to have to wrap up. Um, I'd like to thank both Abby and Jacob for coming on the show. Thank you to Show for recording it. Um, just a reminder that you can catch us every week on SoundCloud, iTunes and Acast. As ever, please do like us, subscribe to us, rate us, all of those things. If you can't wait till next week, you can visit us at newsweek.com or pick up a copy of Newsweek. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.